Mark chapter 11. The sermon will be on uh, verses 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. But I'm going to read from verses 15 to 19 and skip over to verse 27, just for context. Hopefully I didn't lose you on that. But uh, if I do, just try to listen. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And they, that is Jesus and his disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. 
Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he bless the reading and preaching of his word this morning. We have come to a point in the story of redemption where there is a crossroads when it comes to the prevailing authority over God's people. The powers that be have failed and will be called to give an account. But not without resistance, of course. And we have witnessed this resistance from the Jewish leaders throughout Mark, but now it has become vocal. They now question the origin of Jesus' authority. Jesus has become popular among the people, and it is because of his authority. From the moment Jesus began teaching, he was said to be teaching as one who had authority, and it left them asking the question, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Later, the disciples would say something similar. When Jesus calmed the storm, they asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And right before he makes his triumphal entry, he restored the sight of a blind beggar who acknowledged him with the majestic title, Son of David. Now this authority not only afforded him many followers, but also many enemies. Enemies who held positions of authority and felt threatened by his authority. Well, because in light of Jesus' authority, all authority on this planet would come into question. It was an obvious conflict of interest. So the ultimate question this passage answers for us is, where does his authority come from? And where is he from? Where does his authority come from? And where does Jesus come from? Now let us consider the context. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, hailed as the new king of Israel, and went directly to the temple to check things out. That was the first day. The second day, after cursing the fig tree, which symbolized Israel and the temple, He walked back into the temple to cleanse it of the buyers and sellers and declared this accusation against them, especially against the chief priests and scribes. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And now we have come to the third day where he and his disciples again walk back into the temple. Do you think the temple is significant? I think so. Anyone at this point would say to themselves, man, this guy is persistent. To walk in here where he has no official title or authority and act like he does. Now the Jewish leaders have been wanting to say something to Jesus for quite some time. They thought it in their hearts back when he declared to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. That's when some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, knowing their hearts, responded, What's easier? 
To forgive sins? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? He said, guess what? I'll do both. And it happened. So this forms the background for why the leaders of the Jews begin to question his authority. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, or uh, what has been called the Sanhedrin, came and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, that is, cleansing the temple? Or who gave you this authority to do them? In other words, they were saying, We are the authority in the temple, and we didn't give you the authority to do such things. You have no official title. We do. Who do you think you are? Now, they would have known what authority he possessed if they were there with his disciples when he cursed the fig tree with his words and it withered away. He had the same authority as God when God speaks. But if you look at it at face value without considering the context and considering their ignorance, if that were to happen here, we would be asking the same questions. We may even call the proper authorities to take him away. Because Jesus wasn't trying to promote some kind of rebellion or anarchy. He wasn't trying to get rid of their titles or offices. He wasn't trying to get rid of their uh, authority or all authority over God's people so that everyone would have the same authority. He wasn't a congregationalist. Rather, he was fulfilling prophecy as the Lord of the temple, who has come to declare warnings and judgment on its leaders. Later, he would replace their leaders, restore Israel, and build the kingdom of God. But they were so blind by their sin, they couldn't understand or see it. So to answer their question, he asks them a question of his own. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. That's another way of saying, if you answer my question, you will have the answer to your question. So he asks, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. The baptism of John is another way of uh, speaking of John the Baptist's entire ministry. And what was the purpose of John the Baptist's entire ministry? Well, it was to prepare the way for the Lord. So John's ministry found its fulfillment in baptizing Jesus. And that's when the heavens opened and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So was John's ministry from heaven? That's another way of asking. Was John's ministry from God? Or was it from man? Was it man-made? From man's imaginations? He was saying to them, if you say it is from heaven, you've got your answer. If you say it is from man, that is like saying you don't believe that it was from God. So John was really a false prophet and not a prophet at all. See, they were put in a tough position here. 
Listen to how they discussed it with one another. If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? That is, why didn't you believe what he said about the coming Messiah? Why didn't you believe? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But then they say, but shall we say from man? See, they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John was really a prophet from God. So what we can learn here is that Jesus was trying to communicate to them that his authority was from God, just as John's ministry was from God. Before Jesus gives his disciples the great commission, what forms the grounds and allows him to give this commission? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not that Jesus ever lacked authority, but he is speaking of the Father giving his authority to his Son. He is the Father who gave his Son authority over the temple. He has all authority, that is, God's authority, which makes him qualified to send his disciples out. So here he is saying, if you accept John's ministry, then you must accept Jesus' authority as he is much greater than John. He is the Lord whom John was preparing his listeners for. But how did they answer the question? They say, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He left it open for them to think about it and to connect the dots. Now, I think they knew the answer. And they knew what he was claiming. But they were so stubborn and hard-hearted against God, yet at the same time so fearful of the people, they couldn't answer. Notice how these two symptoms go hand in hand. Unbelief and the fear of man. Unbelief and the fear of man. How? Because they spent their time doing and saying things that only benefited themselves. They were lovers of self and lovers of money, proud and arrogant, much like Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If they said that his authority was from heaven, they would have to submit to him. If they said what they really wanted to say, that John's baptism was merely human, they would have the mob of people come after them. Right? Without the people supporting them in the temple, they would have no money. Their condition is no different than any version of unbelief that we see in this world today. No different. It's no different than the version of unbelief we have in ourselves. Think of all the pressure that is on right now in this world on Christians who hold to the truths of the Bible. Who say, contra what the culture is teaching, what the news and the media is teaching. Think of all that pressure that we find ourselves in. And out of fear, we find 
a way to reject Jesus' authority in our lives. To live like everyone else. To be accepted. Maybe even for the sake of popularity or maybe even for the sake of being financially stable. For security. Think of all the churches that have now bowed to the culture's demands to compromise. See, these Jewish leaders, they were in survival mode, right? Where the means justified the ends. They would later depend on Judas to get their way because it will be done secretly where the crowds won't see them take Jesus away. All because they refused to submit to God. All because they refused to submit to God. And we see this happening all the time. And the world has many versions of Jesus out there. Right? Many versions of Jesus. And none of these versions of Jesus does he possess the authority that he claims he has right here in this text. Because what he is saying here is that his authority wasn't merely earthbound. He wasn't a philosopher. He wasn't just a man fighting for a cause. He wasn't a guy teaching good religious principles to live by. He has ultimate authority over all creation. And that includes you and I. He has authority over you and I. Listen to the author of Hebrews. It says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That means life and death are in His hands. Can you or or I do that? I don't think so. We don't have that kind of authority. But here Jesus claims that He does. He has heavenly authority. Authority. He wasn't just a prophet. He had a divine authority. And they rejected it. They rejected it. And there are consequences for rejecting his authority. Because everyone on this earth will one day have to reckon with his authority. We will all one day have to answer to him. So to further teach them about not only his authority but also of his origins, which gives him authority, he began to speak to them in parables. Now when we approach parables, we can make the mistake of trying to interpret every word. Right? Like, uh, I see the mention of a pit. Where is this pit? Where is the wine press? Where is the tower? Where did the man go? Which country did he go to? You see, we can lose the forest for the trees. Notice how I reverse that. So when we approach this parable, we want to focus on the main characters and what they do. There are four main characters. God, Israel's leaders, Israel's prophets, and Jesus. Let's read it. A man planted a vineyard. Now this man is God. And the vineyard is Israel. Israel is often spoken of as a vineyard to describe God's dealings with her. And this vineyard is expected to bear fruit in due season. 
And this man put a fence around the vineyard and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, that is the harvest season, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. This was the cost of their lease. The landowner and the tenants would have agreed on a certain portion of crops to be surrendered as payment for uh, rent, as we would call it today. And a servant wasn't to be received as someone of low stature, but he was to be treated with respect and received as a messenger on behalf of the master of the property. If you reject the servant, you are in a way rejecting the master and rejecting his request for payment. So how did they receive the master's servants who came to collect? It says, And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now the tenants were the Jewish leaders that he was addressing at this moment who were responsible over the vineyard, over Israel, over the temple. They were responsible to produce the crops. And the servants are none other than the prophets that God sent to Israel over the years. He sent them to reap the fruit or to check if they were producing fruit. And if not, they were to rebuke them to remember their master. And what happened to those prophets? Some they beat and some they killed. God's dealings have been so gracious with them, but these tenants failed to produce and the evidence was found in how they treated the temple and her worship. There was no regard for their master. And if anyone would tell them otherwise, they would beat or kill the prophets. Now this is found all throughout the scripture. Uh, Think of Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, after he spoke to the people saying, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has forsaken you. So what happened? The people conspired against Him, and King Joash had him stoned. Think of King Jehoiakim, who killed the prophet Uriah, who prophesied against Judah. And this happens time and time again. Tradition has it, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos were all killed at the hands of God's own people. Why? Because the people didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear God's word and His authority in their lives. And this is a description of the people in our own culture today. This is the description of all of us as we are born depraved, as we are born, and as we grow not wanting to hear the Word of God. This is why most people don't go to church, that is, sound churches. And people come up with a whole list of reasons why they don't go to church. But at the top of the list, it is none other than they don't want to hear it. 
They don't want to hear God's authority proclaimed on their lives. None of us do. No one wants to be subject to authority. That is our nature. We see it in our children, and we see it in grown adults today. It's all over the TV. A whole bunch of whining and pouting going on, but nobody wants to submit to authority, especially God's authority. People don't want to hear it. Listen to Jesus' own words of woe against the Pharisees and scribes. And listen to how he speaks of himself as the Lord, as God himself. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. And later he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Notice how he speaks of himself as the God of the Old Testament. How often would I have gathered your children? And there is more to the parable. Sadly, there is more to this parable. Not only did the tenants reject the servants that were sent to them, but they would do something far more egregious. It says he had still one other, a beloved son. Sounds much like the voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. Finally, the master sent his beloved son to them, saying, they will respect my son. See how his identity And the origin of his authority is now being revealed. He is saying, not only is my authority from heaven, but my origin is from heaven. I am not just a man, but I I am also the son of the master. I am the son of God, which means my nature is different than those servants that were sent to you before. He is saying to them, I am your God, and I have authority over you. And they would have caught on by now. So he explains. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. That is, outside of the gates of Jerusalem, where they killed him on a cross on Mount Calvary. Now, again, we can get caught in all the details rather than focusing on the nature of the characters and what they have done. The reasoning or the motive behind the tenants killing and expelling the son out of the vineyard is not what is important here. Because the Jewish leaders didn't even recognize Jesus as the beloved son. Uh, So you would ask, what inheritance, right? You you get into these questions. Uh, Jesus was describing their nature and character, their viciousness, their maliciousness, their piracy. Uh, They wanted position and authority. Uh, They wanted what what wasn't theirs to have. They wanted to keep all of the harvest and the property that wasn't theirs to keep. They had made idols of that which was only rented to them for a time. And they failed 
with the little that was given to them. See, everything, everything that is given to us is only for a time. And then God will ask us, what have we done with what he has given us? For the Jewish leaders, the temple became a lucrative and profitable business for them. And it was never devoted to God. And they wanted to rule and reign over it forever. Forgetting once the Messiah comes, the temple and her sacrifices would pass away, the fruits will be inspected, and they would be called to judgment. And the temple system they wanted to secure would be fulfilled in Jesus. Notice the irony here. Notice the irony. In wanting to secure what they had, they would eventually kill the son, which would fulfill what the temple sacrifices stood for to begin with. His death on the cross outside the vineyard would mark the end of the physical temple. And they would be used as tools in the hands of God to finish His work of redemption. But they would still be held accountable. Because it is one thing to reject the servants and it is another to reject and kill the son. The son has more authority than the servants. He is the heir of the inheritance. So not only will God ask us, what have we done with what he has given us? He will also ask us, what have we done with his son that was presented and given to us? Have we rejected him? Or have we trusted in him? So he asks the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come and destroy the tenants. This is not just speaking of the death penalty, but it is speaking of complete destruction of the entire regime and what they stood for. But notice, there is still hope in this text. It sounds morbid until now, where he says, and he will give the vineyard to others. Who do you think that will be? Ultimately, he gives the vineyard to the church. He gives it to the apostles, and then the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, all those who have turned to Jesus by faith and received salvation, no matter what you have done in the past. He will give the vineyard to you. Why? Because He is the foundation. He lays the foundation for the whole building of God. Listen to what He says. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It was a judgment on the Jewish leaders because they rejected their own salvation, but it is also a vindication of Jesus Christ and all those who believe in Him. This is the fulfillment of the last shall be first and the first shall be last. This reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. I know I quote that often. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, after Aslan, the lion is killed on the stone table. 
Susan and Lucy are mourning him as they are walking away until they hear a big crack. They turn to see what was going on and all they see is the sun rising, uh, blinding their eyes and the stone table was broken in two. But Aslan was not there. And they inquire more. They, suddenly, they hear a voice, and there he was, standing in the sunlight, shaking his mane, shaking off what the enemies have done to him. This was his vindication. This was the Lord's doing. And Susan and Lucy would have to say, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But how was this the Lord's doing? How is it marvelous? And why? Because it is the way of salvation. The rejection and death of His Son would secure a place for others in the vineyard that God has planted. And like I said, it is presented to you and I. It is no longer restricted to ethnic Israel. He's given it to others outside of the fold. See, the rejection and death of his son would secure a place in the kingdom of God for those who believe in the words of his son, the one who has ultimate authority. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Then in three days... He will be vindicated when he rises and lays the foundation of the church. He would replace these leaders with himself, save a people for himself, and give the church new leaders who rely on his word and spirit to lead his people. One day, all authority on this planet would have to give an account to the one who holds ultimate authority. Are we prepared for that day? Are we prepared for that day? So I ask a few questions to you. Who is Jesus to you in your life? Is He your authority? Does He hold authority in your life? Or is He here only to hear your prayers? Is He just here to do what you want Him to do, yet you forget what He has commanded you to do. When His Word convicts you and says there is sin in your life, do you accept or reject His authority? Do you seek to repent? And if you were to examine your life, what is your life built upon? Is it built upon Christ as our foundation, as our cornerstone? What are you doing with the Son of God? And what are we doing with what God has given to us? What are we doing with the vineyard? See, the Jewish leaders failed to produce because they rejected God's authority in their lives. And they killed the prophets and God's only son. That was their fruit. It was rotten to the core. Their fruit was murder. First, they rejected the God who made them and the son who can save them. And it was evident in the fruit in their actions. And they reaped what they sowed. So the question is, what are we doing with the church? What are we doing with the time He has given us and the people we were meant to serve?
because the harvest season is right around the corner. Amen. Let us pray.